Hello and welcome to another episode of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. Today is Tuesday, August 10th, 2021, and this is episode 29A. I do apologize if you showed up yesterday on Monday looking for the standard Monday A episode. It turned out that there was some movers and construction things going on in our house yesterday that I wasn't really aware of until it was already happening. So I just pushed the recording of the episode back till today where it is much quieter. Um, and hopefully we'll have a good episode for you to make up for lost time. To start things off, you can find me online, my social media uh, usernames. Oh my god, I'm on Instagram, I am Anna with the comics because my name is Anna and I have the comics. On Twitter, I am Savage SheGeek because Sensational was too many letters. Most of what I do on Twitter is just, you know, fun retweets of mostly comic-related stuff, but any updates that I have for the podcast, such as the announcement that the Monday episode was being put off, that is all done on Twitter. So if you want to uh, keep up to date with any kind of uh, rearranging of episodes, that is where I will be announcing those. I also have a website and blog. It is where I kept up with uh, comic book pick lists, poll lists, reviews, discussions, everything like that written that can be all found. Um, the material prior to when I started the podcast can be all found on my website, sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. Um, you can also find on my website a good number of things, including links to listen to uh, this podcast everywhere that is available to stream, and that does include YouTube. Um, it's all on a YouTube playlist, and I also have on YouTube video reviews of action figures. Um, that's, so if you're inter any interested in that kind of thing, you can go ahead and check that out. Also linked on my website and throughout my various social media uh, profiles is my new Patreon. The Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street podcast does have a Patreon now. It is completely up to you if you would like to donate to the podcast at all. Um, I imagine one-time donations are a thing you could do. Um, otherwise, you know, whatever you feel like this podcast may be worth to you in terms of entertainment and knowledge gained, um, you know, the price of a comic book a month, whatever. And that is, like I said, entirely voluntary if you just feel like you can and would like to support the podcast in an extra way, that would be how to do it on the Patreon. I'm also considering getting started with some more Patreon exclusive materials such as potentially special edition podcast episodes. Um, I know I've mentioned the stickers before, those will also be on Patreon to start. Um, anything else that I kind of come up with will be showed to Patreon first. Before we get started with the main podcast episode here today, uh, we have a couple of very brief announcements and reminders, and that is What If? The Marvel What If series starts Wednesday on Disney+. Plus. That is actually tomorrow the 11th. The first episode will be live on Disney+. Plus. I will be discussing the What If episodes on Friday B episodes after having watched them on Wednesday nights. So you have a little bit of time there to watch them before I spoil them on the Friday episodes. We also have starting on Thursday is Titan season three. I was very much a fan of the first two seasons. Um, <laughs> I'm extremely curious how this season's gonna go based on all of the teasers and posters and character announcements that we've gotten. So that's gonna be starting season three this coming Thursday night, this uh, on the 12th. 
assuming that I am able to watch it Thursday night, it will be discussed on Friday podcast episodes. Otherwise, I will probably watch it over the weekend and discuss it on the Monday podcast episode. So keep an eye out for that. Finally, uh, Free Comic Book Day is coming this Saturday. Uh, Saturday is the 14th. Free Comic Book Day is run by uh, Diamond Distributors and they have... They basically put out um, free issues of various things that publishers provide them um, as kind of a thank you to publishers as well as to readers um, and also to give a bit of a, usually it's a bit of a um, heads up as to what is coming across various publishers. I'm going to have a lot more stuff that I'm going to be talking about that on the Friday episode, but some of the highlights that you could look forward to hearing about include Enter the House of Slaughter, ZOM 100 Bucket List, Avatar The Last Airbender Legend of Korra, Tales of a Grown-Up Nothing, which is from Silver Sprocket, one of my absolute favorite Zine publishers, Titan Comics One-Shots, Kodansha comics anime turned uh, manga comics, Star Wars turned manga, and a lot more. For the main bulk of this episode, what we're going to be discussing includes the comic book pull list as usual, and then of course we're going to be going into the Suicide Squad, that is James Gunn's Suicide Squad, uh, and finally we will be wrapping up the episode with a discussion of the Bad Batch episode 15 which is of 16 episodes. The final episode does premiere this coming Friday, as this one did premiere last Friday. So we're wrapping things up, and I'm very excited to talk about the big reveals that were made in that episode. If you would like to skip over this week's comic book poll list and go straight into the Suicide Squad and the Bad Batch, go ahead and jump to about 32 and a half minutes in. We'll be wrapping that poll list up and moving on to the Suicide Squad. The comic book poll list is a little bit smaller than I normally have, um, but the things that we're going to be discussing today prior to them releasing either today for DC Comics on the 10th or Wednesday for all other comics on the 11th, we're going to be discussing I Am Batman number zero, Defenders number one, Mamo number two, Fight Girls number two, Fantastic Four Life Story number three, America Chavez Made in the USA number five, Silver Coin number five, very briefly X-Force 22 before Captain Marvel 31 and Daredevil 33. As usual, these are organized uh, chronologically. Um, I couldn't really pull out enough to do spotlights from this week's personal poll list of my own. Um, hopefully we'll be getting back to doing that as soon as we can. Um, but for the most part, this is we're just going to do this chronologically and it is going to be some I'm going to talk about extremely briefly, and some I'm probably going to go on for until you are tired of hearing about it. So uh, let's go ahead and get started with I Am Batman number zero. The saga of Jace Fox as Batman. Um, Jace Fox is the son, or excuse me, the brother of Luke, the son of... Um, the son of Lucius Fox. His name is actually Tim Fox. Um, yes, his older brother, Luke, was Batwing in the past, his own Bat character. Um, his father was a employee of the Waynes and Wayne Industries, until very recently, where through convoluted comics means, Lucius Fox and the Fox family has come into the wealth 
of Bruce Wayne. <laughs> he kind of gave it to them slash it was given to them. It, it was a whole convoluted thing that happened, but the Foxes are now the wealthiest family in Gotham. Um, and that is giving way for Jace Fox, AKA Tim Fox to lead up to where we saw him in the earlier this year's future state. This whole saga of Jace Fox becoming Batman is a little bit backwards because it starts in our times. It was January of 2021 when they released DC Future State Batman, which was the first time that we see Tim slash Jace Fox as Batman. It's not necessarily revealed that it's him for a few issues, but I mean, it's it, it was pretty much revealed. I'm pretty sure they officially revealed it before that ever came out. Comics are always spoiling themselves. What can I say? So we started there with seeing him as Batman. And then after that, we get the Batman the Second Son series, which is by John Ridley the same way that the Future State Batman stuff was also by John Ridley. Um, and the Batman the Second Son is all about, as you might imagine, Tim being the second son of Lucius, coming into his own, the story of how he becomes on that how he arrives on that road to becoming Batman. So that was the whole Second Son series. It gave a lot of backstory into the Fox family as a whole. Um, and now we're actually going to see the start, the beginning of Jace Fox as Batman in I Am Batman number zero, again by John Ridley with art by Travel Foreman. I didn't mispronounce that. It's not Travis, it's Travel. Although I do mispronounce names constantly. It's, I don't do it on purpose. I apologize. <laughs> um, so what the solicitation for this one says, this is of course the first official black Batman. Um, t uh, Luke Fox was not technically Batman. He was Batwing. It's a, it was a little bit of a difference. Um, but we do have the solicitation here, and it says, The age of a new dark night begins. Picking up immediately from the events of the next Batman, Second Son, Jace Fox begins to march toward his destiny when he fights to protect Alleytown against the oppressive forces of the Magistrate. Using Batman armor and tech he's found in Bruce Wayne's old base of operations, the Hibernaculum. That's a fun name. Um, I have been a big fan of what John Ridley's been doing with this Luke Fox, or excuse me, with this Tim Fox Batman stuff. The series is going to lead us to what we saw in Future State and potentially show the clash between Batman, excuse me, between Bruce Wayne and Jace Fox, the opposing Batman. Um, we saw a little bit of that in Future State, but we're probably going to be seeing um, what that really all means here in I Am Batman. Defenders number one is not a traditional Defenders series. It does have a few classic characters. It brings in a few extra characters. Um, and it seems to be that they're going up against what is called Marvel's oldest villain, who I understand to be Dormammu. Um, I could be completely wrong about that. The lineup on this Defenders team is Harpy, who is of course Betty Ross, um, made into Red She-Hulk, made into Harpy, and then we have Masked Raider, Doctor Strange, of course, Silver Surfer, and Cloud. Assuming that Harpy is the Hulk of this team, we do get a number of uh, classic characters here 
from the OG Defenders and big fan favorite team lineup. So I'm not very familiar with Harpy. I have an interest in her and I have no idea who Cloud is. And then Master Raider, Silver Surfer's cool, Doctor Strange is fine. Master Raider is a character, I'm sure. Um, but this is, uh, it's intriguing. It talks, the solicitation talks about the team going on a mission that will uncover the hidden archite architecture of reality itself. The cosmos was not the first to exist. And so it's going to go through time and space and I'm sure be pretty interesting. Um, got a couple gorgeous covers, one specifically by Peach Momoko of the Silver Surfer that I think is really beautiful. So um, if you're a fan of Defenders or Doctor Strange, or I suppose the Master Raider, since he seems to be the co-leader of this team, definitely check this one out. Mamo number two, I have been looking forward to with bated breath. Is that a thing people still say? I don't know. I'm, I've been very excited for this to come. The first issue, um, I actually asked the guy at the comic shop, is this, is this supposed to be a kid's comic or is this kind of like one of those all ages kids could read it too, but it's, you know, good for adults and whatever. And he said, you know what? I'm not really sure. Um, and after reading it, I concur with that. I am not really sure if this is meant to be a kid's comic or, um, all ages. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Whatever it is, it is wondrous. Um, if there is one thing that I could compare this to, to make you understand what it kind of feels like to read as a story, Studio Ghibli. Um, if you're familiar with, you know, Kiki's Delivery Service, My Neighbor Totoro, any of those movies, um, this is practically one of those movies made into a comic. Um, it's, you know, the themes of it, the slow nature sequences that somehow you can feel the breeze blowing as you turn the page and look through the panels. like, And it's all done by one person. It's all done by Sass Millage, who I, I'm not entirely sure what she has done before, but I am supremely impressed. Um, the tone of the story is so incredibly strong. Um, it makes me so excited to see what's going to come next because that was such a beautiful start and assuming that writers get more used to their characters and scenarios as they go, it's only going to get better. What this issue will be about after the first issue ending with the local hedge witch being um, confronted by her, uh, a, the ghost of her grandmother, the very angry ghost of her grandmother, uh, this issue will be about uh, the the young hedge witch who has taken up her grandmother's mantle as as the local witch, she is going to have to track down all of her grandmother's bones to lay them to rest properly. That's why she is haunting and wreaking havoc all over the town. Again, this is so Studio Ghibli, like everything about it, um, from the character design to who the characters are, their young girls. Um, to the kind of coming of age aspects of the story, the magical aspects. Um, it's, it's just, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful comic and I'm not sure how long it's going to be. I know at least three issues, um, but I'm hoping we get at least, you know, five or six because this is, this is way too pretty and fantastic of a read to be so short. 
the second issue of Fight Girls is also out this week. It's going to be of five issues. They are by Frank Cho, written and drawn, and I'm on the fence, honestly, if I'm even going to buy the second issue. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to ease it back a little bit with things that I'm not completely head over heels with. Why do I keep reading them? I don't know. FOMO? Maybe that's... I've, I've never been one to subscribe to the idea of, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out. But when it comes to comics, I'm a bit of a victim of my own FOMO. But anyway, Fight Girls, um, it's... It's it's all right. It, it's the story of um, ten women from across the galaxy who are fighting in these challenges to become the queen of the galaxy. Um, and as far as I can tell, based on all the teasers that Cho has been posting, it's not going to be all fun and games when it's over. She's not going to be a happy queen. She's probably going to be like a birthing woman tied to a chair, pumping out babies for the king is kind of what it looks like based on what Cho's been posting to his instagram and based on him um yeah that's probably what this is going to turn out to be so i don't know if i really want to read something that's headed in that direction um we'll see tomorrow when i show up to my comic shop if i end up buying that or not because i am on the fence i'm sure i'm sure it's a very fun story i'm sure it has plenty of audience so it doesn't need me Fantastic Four Life Story number three. This is a not follow-up, but a kind of, um, uh, how, what, what, they did, Chip Sartsky started this by doing Spider-Man Life Story, following Peter Parker through the decades as Spider-Man, where things that happened in certain eras of our time were actually that era in Spidey's time. So, you know, the 60s, 70s, the 80s, he's getting a decade older in each decade until by the end he's an older man. Uh, Fantastic Four Life Story, same kind of concept. We're seeing the Fantastic Four superhero team going through the decades in real time. Um, the last issue, uh, we saw exactly what I predicted, actually. It was Reed becoming so incredibly obsessed with the idea of Galactus coming that it tears apart his family, his relationships, and even his professional life. Sue leaves him for Namor, which was awesome. I, I uh, My headcanon is that Sue, when Sue left him uh, in Civil War, they have not been back together as a romantic couple. They are just parents to the kids. That's my headcanon. Uh, and then also, anyway, <laughs> uh, so Sue leaves him for Namor in this last issue, and then he ends up uh, Reed ends up living with Ben Grimm as like a bachelor pad situation. Um, kind of sad. So uh, what the solicitation says for this week is the real time story of the Fantastic Four continues. In a story set in the 1980s, Reed has his adventure to defend the Earth from Galactus, but will his plans be derailed by the Cold War? Sue and Johnny are invited to speak at the United Nations about saving the world, and a maverick computer genius offers hope to humanity with his new computer company, but is that all he's offering? Something that I have to wonder in this is, are we going to see their daughter? Are we going to see Valeria? Valeria? V whatever her name is. Um... Are we going to see her? Because right now they have their son, um, but no daughter. And if they're split up, potentially she won't be a thing. Uh, but maybe in this world they're going to say she's somebody else's daughter. I don't know. Um, but I'm, I'm just curious about all that. Um, 
I, I really enjoy seeing the Fantastic Four from this perspective. Um, it's giving them different lives than they've had before, which I think is pretty satisfying as a reader perspective. Um, and it's also giving us basically a really cool what if. This whole thing is is kind of a big what if because it's it's taking the comics as they've always been written, where as decades go by in our time, you know, nobody ages in the comics. And it's making it so that, yes, they have to age and things are going to be very different because of that. Um, I just really enjoy it. America Chavez made in the USA number five. This is one I'm not very excited for because I have been so incredibly disappointed with where they are taking America's origin in this. This is the final issue, so that's good. And there is a cute little variant by Natasha Bustos. If you are going to be picking it up, check that one out. Um... I still think all of the origin changes for America, they had to be to make way for the MCU version of her, which is a little bit upsetting to be honest. I still think that both versions, comic and MCU, should have been from the Utopian parallel, especially since that was such a cornerstone of her character. Um, I just, uh, I spent a long time at the beginning of this series saying, oh, it looks like they're not going to be changing you know, her past. So that's awesome. If you want to add stuff to a character, you don't need to change their past. You could just add it to a section of their life we haven't seen yet. And then foot and mouth, they go and they completely rewrite her origin in a not good way. And the reason that I think it is not good, in case you're confused, she was supposed to come from the utopian parallel, which was like a pocket dimension where, um, you know, everything's great. Obviously, that makes sense. Utopian parallel. Um, and I guess there are like super powered versions of people there and she's one of them and she had the two moms who were superheroes on that world. Um, and then she just kind of wound up here. And what they've changed it to is she and her sister got sick as kids on earth, regular ass kids with just nurses for moms. Um, not that nurses are, you know, not heroes or anything, but certainly not the same thing as you know, cape swing superheroes, um, from a utopian parallel. And so they got really sick and they teamed up with this mad scientist guy who created a dome for them to live in that they wouldn't be sick in or something like that. Um, and gave them treatments to help their sickness, which gave them the powers. So not only is America not unique, she was just a confused kid who forgot her origin um that's kind of how i feel about that the silver coin number five uh is going to be written and drawn by michael walsh the solicitation sounds pretty interesting it says the fifth installment of the horror anthology from michael walsh chip zarsky kelly thompson ed britson jeff lemire the story reaches back to when the coin's cruel curse was first minted in a small new england village a woman has been curse accused of witchcraft we can see where that's going um this has been a very fun series because there is so much room to do all kinds of things um, and, and having different writers on each issue is really fun to see what story they choose to write and what kind of style they take on as their writer voice. Um, with this story being in a New England village where a woman is accused of witchcraft, I imagine this is going to be basically the Salem witch trials. 
I'm very curious as to how the coin is going to get tied into that. Is it going to be the witch curses the coin because it was like the good luck charm of the guy who kills them? Or is it something that it was a cursed coin and the witch came across it and that's how she ends up getting accused of witchcraft? I mean, I'm not really sure, but I am certainly excited to see what's up in this issue. X-Force continues this week with issue number 22. Wolverine and Domino and Beast and all those good guys are doing X-Force-y things on Krakoa, I'm sure. Uh, Captain Marvel 31. Now, this is one that I am a little bit more interested in talking about. To start, we'll go over the solicitation. Uh, no, we won't, actually. Um, I can do... I, I think I should just talk you through it. So, where we just ended on the last um, Captain Marvel issue, number 30 was the end of an arc, uh, end of a story arc. So that whole shtick of Carol going to the the future and meeting Rhodey's kid and coming back here and breaking up with Rhodey so that he can go off and have that kid with Kate Pride. That's who it is. They didn't say it, but that's who it is. That's her mother. Um, that whole drama. And then she, she broke up with Rhodey immediately sleeps with Doctor Strange who immediately turns around and tells Rhodey that Carol needs help and they're just like bros <laughs> and now they're back together Carol and Rhodey um I just <laughs> what was the point of that you're just you just went in a big circle and now you're right back to where we started I'm not really sure what the point of all that was nothing changed there was no development um I just, I, whatever it was, this next story arc is is supposed to be Carol and Rhodey going on a vacation together, uh, but then they get a distress call and they go on a detour and go off and do battle stuff, which is exactly how the last story arc ha started. Carol and Rhodey were going on vacation together. Uh, she ends up getting attacked by something and ends up in the future and then no more vacation. Like she comes back and breaks it off. Yada, yada, yada. Now they're going on vacation again. I guess, I guess, you know, there's an argument that, oh, their relationship's back on. So, so is their vacation. Like what? She just slept with Dr. Strange like less than a week ago. And you guys are basically just pretending that it was a handshake in the dark. <laughs> A little bit more than that, but that's just me, I guess. Um, so the person who they're supposed to be responding to a distress call from is the Cree accuser, L'Oreal, who, if you recall, is Carol's half-sister. Um, notably created from just the genetic material of Carol's mother and some other Cree soldier, uh, because that's how they just made these soldiers um, on Hala, the Cree planet. Um... Which is notable, I'll get to why that's notable in a second. Um, but she, I guess, is having some kind of dilemma that she needs to have Carol go help with her with. Um, I will be very unhappy if it ends up being that L'Oreal dies. She is easily the best thing that has come out of Kelly Thompson's now 31 issue going on 33 issue Captain Marvel run. I will be very upset if she dies. Um, I don't think that's how Thompson would kind of do this, but you never know. Um, after, you know, possibly due to that, whatever it's going to be, um, they're going to find out that 
there is somebody hunting down the various Captain Marvels. And that's going to be the next arc. There's apparently a bunch of evil Captain Marvels. If you recall, when Carol um, was not under the influence of, but was trying to figure out how to get out of the influence of um, the good old Kree's Supreme Intelligence, which was crossed with, what was his name, Vox? So they called him Vox Supreme. Really, really bad evil dude sent Carol to go kill the Avengers. Um, and so we have this evil Carol look. Apparently there's multiples of them that are going to be coming after various versions of Marvels. What they say in the next issue is that they name Kamala Khan, who is, of course, Ms. Marvel. Now I was thinking about this, and since issue 33, um, possible spoiler alert, it does have a spoiler cover that has already been released. And I think it's, I mean, it's definitely a creep guy. I'm not sure who it is though, based on the appearance. Um, but it could be a number, uh, it could be Genusville technically, I guess. It could be, um, uh, the Cree Marvel, whose name is, uh, Kuner. I don't know how to say that, but it's like K-H-N-N-R. Kuner. <laughs> it could be, uh, Novar in a different outfit, Marvel Boy. Um, but those are also all characters who could be going at, being, who these bad Marvel, whoever there are, evil characters are going after. Because the whole Marvel family of the Captain Marvels, the Ms. Marvels, etc. We have uh, Carol, obviously, Kamala as Ms. Marvel. Monica Rambeau has been Captain Marvel. Novar is Marvel Boy. Uh, Kner is the Kree Marvel. He was back in Secret Invasion, I believe it was. He replaced Marvel. But the thing is, um, he kind of lost it and became like he believed that he was Marvel. Um, so then ever since then, he's he just kind of took off into space to go be a hero. And I'm pretty sure that's the last time that we saw him. So it could definitely be him returning. Uh, Phyla Vell was Captain Marvel at one point. Genus Vell, her brother technically, is also Captain Marvel at one point. And L'Oreal, of course, being the daughter of Carol's mother and sister of Carol. And now the Kree accuser could also be a target if they're going after uh, those kinds of characters. So... I am hoping that that arc is going to be a lot better than this arc of Captain Marvel. Like I said, the arc before this one, where we meet L'Oreal, was great. This arc, which was more of a duo of arcs, kind of sucks really bad. Uh, so I'm hoping that we go back on an upswing for this next one. Especially if we're supposed to be encountering all these different Marvel captains, Mrs. Marvel's boys, girls, whatever it is. I, I really hope that um, this is a much better arc with all of those characters being added to it. Daredevil is also on issue 33 this week. Uh, I feel like we've been getting this a lot more often than we had in the past. Uh, no argument. I absolutely love Chip Sarsky's Daredevil. As I say, every time I talk about it, there has not been a single issue of Chip Sarsky's Daredevil that I have not been completely enamored with. Um, this issue is back to having the fantastic Marco Cicchetto on art. He's an Italian artist who just draws, oh my god, just so well. He's also been as the main cover artist for Captain Marvel recently. If you happen to see some of those, the main covers were him as well. Um, he has this beautiful, just luscious way of drawing Electra's hair um, in a way that I can only compare to Joelle Jones 
and artists who kind of have that similar luscious, luxurious inking style. Um, it's 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 low key sexual. It's so beautiful. Um, this issue we're going to be dealing with Bullseye, who we, uh, he, we thought he was somewhere ever has somehow everywhere at once. End of the last issue, we learned that there were actually multiple Bullseyes, whatever that might mean. Since Bullseye, the real one, has actual powers, it makes a lot of sense to me that these other Bullseyes would be clones of him, not just random mercenaries, because they wouldn't be as powerful or as lethal as him unless they were clones or alternate reality versions, something like that. So Electra's going to be dealing with him while Matt is still in prison, being Daredevil in prison, dealing with a whole other world of BS. So I'm, I love it, though. Shipsarski does a fantastic job writing Daredevil. I, it's been 33 issues and not a, not a moment of being bored. Alrighty, folks, it is time for the main event. I imagine what people are here for. My discussion of James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. Now, before we get in here, yes, I will be spoiling the shit out of it. Um, yes, I will probably slip up and end up cussing a little bit because it happens. Um, and no, it is not going to be a, um, yes man moment. <laughs> This is going to be a fairly negative review. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say it right now. I watched this movie once because I couldn't bring myself to watch it a second time. That gives you a good idea of where I'm at with it before we get started. Now, to start things on a more positive note, I guess, uh, things that I loved about this movie. I loved Harley Quinn, um, Polka Dot Man for the most part, and there was a good amount of fun humor. Yeah. Uh, things I did not enjoy about this movie. And for context, I really enjoyed Guardians of the Galaxy. I have minor issues with Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Um, and I really enjoyed the Belko experiment. Um, for the most part, I liked Brightburn. Um, I'm kind of curious now if I go back and watch the Belko experiment, if there's going to be a lot of problematic stuff I didn't notice the first time based on how Suicide Squad went for me. Uh, so overall, it was fine, I guess. Um, I was obviously very unhappy with a lot of it. Um, you can call me whatever woke names you want, um, but there are a fair amount of problematic points with this movie and a surprising amount of really overblown moments that just completely missed. Um, so let's go ahead and start explaining what all that was. There are classic tropes of, um, <laughs> mild, not so mild racism, like, um, dark skin, black woman, bad, light skin, black woman, good. There are two black women in this movie. One is extremely dark skin. That is Viola Davis playing Amanda Waller. The other was extremely light skin. I don't get the actress, the actress's name. I did not catch it or her character's name if she even had one. Um, <laughs> when Amanda Waller is taken out, she's taken out by the only other black woman in the room who's extremely light skinned. Um, <laughs> it just felt very 
much like Gunn was going through here, trying to check his anti-problematic boxes and went, oh, I can't have Waller knocked out by a dude or by a white woman. It's got to be a black woman. And so he chose the only other one in the movie. <laughs> two of them in the movie. Just two. Just two. If there was more, I apologize. I only watched it once. Uh, another classic trope, the demasculization, demasculant demasculization of black men in order to make them more appeasing to a white audience. Idris Elba is a fairly dark-skinned black man. It is very clear to see. Um, and he was pretty much the main character of this movie. That's undeniable. Um, his, char his character, for the most part, was pretty badass. However, he was a shitty father. That's another fun trope. He was a shitty father. Um, and he, uh, was afraid of rats. So, like, like, not just afraid of rats the way that, like, I'm afraid of, no, I'm pretty afraid of spiders, it's a bad example. He was more afraid of spi rats than I am of spiders, so that was completely unnecessary. It didn't add anything to the plot, um, even with his friendship with Ratcatcher 2, which is one of the elements that I more or less enjoyed of this movie, um, it didn't add anything to their friendship him being afraid of rats. It was just his for his demasculization to make him more appeasing to a white audience who would not be so keen on seeing just a big buff, extremely dark-skinned black dude being the main character who is a man's man. They can't have that, right? You gotta give him some kind of bitch element? I don't know. Um, also, another classic trope of big Hollywood guy putting all of his white friends into his movie. I don't know how many times they unnecessarily flash to his girlfriend during this movie. She's playing a real character from the comics, but I, I swear to God they had to pull this character out of their ass because she has only appeared slightly over a dozen times, period, in comics. He probably had to work pretty hard to find somebody to cast her as to put her in this movie. She had very little going on at all, um, but they kept flashing to her face for some reason, to show her reactions to things. What? No, I don't care about her. Show me a character who actually matters to this movie. Um, and then, you know, Steve Adji, basically all of the actors who are in the first sequence who get killed on the beach. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to not see that once you start noticing it. Uh, there's also a lot of jokes about characters who clearly have mental health issues or disorders. I don't even need to specify who those were because there were so many. Killing off Rick Flagg and using his final words as the tagline for the Peacemaker show is, like, ridiculously disrespectful. He was probably one of the only male characters from the movie in the comics who has an actual fan base. So it's, it's, just, it's just a total waste and it was dramatic and gory and just disappointing to see happen. Uh, Peacemaker was a character who I just found just ridiculously annoying and to a point that I could not find anything he said funny. There was not nearly enough Harley Quinn in retrospect and she was 100% the best part of this movie. There were a general bit of very predictable plot elements which I've also become very aware of recently in watching movies and TV shows um, get better, I guess. I should not be sitting here being able to come up with a better plot than The Professionals. Um, and there were a lot of just really genuinely lame, not funny jokes. Um, 
it, it, it kind of fell along the lines of, you know, the old joke as the most homosexual interactions in the universe are when straight male men get together. A lot of that kind of jokes, you know, where it's like, dicks and balls, dicks and balls, I'm obsessed with buttholes, stuff like that. Um, what is it with straight dudes and all of that? Like, admit that you're kind of into guys, just admit it. Um, they also, they gave fucking Peacemaker, an HBO Max show. Um, I don't want to see that. His character really, really sucked in every way possible. I have zero interest in watching a show about him. By the end of the movie, he sucked so hard that I was just... I was glad when he died. And then it turned out that he wasn't dead. And I honestly am glad I didn't watch that post credit scene because it probably would have had me throwing my drink across the room. Because he sucked so hard. I genuinely don't like this character. Why did you give him a show? Like, okay, sure. Give, give John Cena a DC comic show on a whim. None of the other amazing female or queer characters waiting in the wings. It, it just makes me really, really mad that they threw Peacemaker a show so quickly and easily instead of literally any of the other characters that fans have been begging for that would have been far more quality and more enjoyable. And it turns out that this character genuinely sucks. I do have to note here, because I'm sure somebody is thinking of it right now, uh, James Gunn did address this exact concern back when the show was first announced. And I did reread those tweets over the weekend to kind of address it here. What he basically said was that HBO told him that he could do whatever he wanted uh, as far as a show, and this is what he wanted to do, so that's what they're doing. His argument is that movies like Jaws and other classic, you know, deep white guy into movies, oh no, they say film, deep white guy into films, <laughs> favorite types of movies, uh, they were never asked to be made and turned out to be classics, although I would argue that Jaws isn't a very good movie, but okay. In that sense, Gun, you're choosing to do what you want, and that's, in a sense, fine. But what you want to do here is apparently showcasing more straight white culture instead of what is needed in society and in this community. It doesn't make you some freedom of speech martyr. It makes you look like a cunt. Okay, got that out. Um, <laughs> and it was something that was brought up to me also this past weekend, um, there are some arguments against Gunn's treatment of people with mental disabilities in his movies. Um, something that I honestly became very aware of while watching the Suicide Squad. I had heard the argument um, about his movies being kind of offensive before that he, he, he kind of makes autism the butt of the joke far too often. In the MCU, Drax is basically just a big shirtless alien who quote, seems to be autistic because he doesn't understand English or people. And it's a gimmick that becomes redundant when Mantis comes along in the same exact way. In Suicide Squad, I saw a hell of a lot of neurodivergent people being made the butt of the jokes as well. That being said, there are articles all over about some young boy whose confidence grew from seeing an autistic appearing Drax on screen as a hero. Good for him. Um, the world isn't always as clear-cut as kids see it, no matter how much we'd like it to be, and feeling that you're being made fun of because an autistic character is constantly being made the butt of jokes is just as valid. Um, I had a funny thing happen before we get into an explanation of the characters of Suicide Squad. Uh, I had a kind of funny thing happen over the weekend. 
I am a part of um, an online Discord, which is basically about uh, women and gender. It's, it's just all women and gender queer people. Um, so I was very surprised when somebody kind of seemed to want to mansplain Peacemaker's comics to me a little bit. Um, I ignored it, but man, what a thing to try and explain comics to someone who holds a semi-weekly comic book podcast. My man. That was not a good choice, and you look really obnoxious right now. Uh, please don't try and mansplain things to me about comics. I'm aware. I am capable of doing my own research. I researched all of these characters before I saw the movie. I am perfectly aware of who they are. Thank you very much. Um, and that may sound like I'm being really sensitive. To be completely honest, I have had to deal with this so much. I once posted a video of X-Men number one with the wraparound Jim Lee cover. It was a connecting cover, but then certain ones were wraparound where you could unfold it and it's the whole thing. Well, inside that issue is a foldout by Jim Lee of, I don't remember what character, but um, I made this video once talking about how pretty the cover was. And in the video, probably like a minute or two into it, I opened it up and showed that centerfold. And then, you know, went back to talking about the issue. Um, I had a dude comment on the video. That's such a cool cover. Did you know that if you look inside, it has a centerfold that's really cool by Jim Lee too? Bitch, I put it in the fucking video. Like, please, man, I am so sensitive to that kind of stuff. Like, it, it, just in the same way that society as a whole needs to learn to respond to people's trauma without telling stories of their own trauma... People need to learn to, if they feel like they need to come in and explain something or clarify something, don't say it in a way that makes you come off like a jackass because it's real easy and it rubs people the wrong way and you probably don't know what you're talking about anyway. This, this person was trying to explain comics to a comic podcast host, so please just be quiet about that. <laughs> Anyway, so um, some of the characters, we're going to go over all the characters here. Um, they're not really in any particular order. They're just here. So starting with the ones who immediately died in the beginning, we have Mongal. I don't know if we say Mongol or Mongal, but Mongol is her brother. Um, it's spelled with a gal instead of a gol at the end. Not very creative as far as female versions of a male character name goes. She first appeared with her brother as a baby in 1995, but did not first appear fully until Superman number 160 in 2001, six years later. As far as her costume goes, it's not a terrible translation. Um, somehow they made her look absolutely terrible in the movie where she looks really cool in the comic. So, but it's pretty much the same stuff. So I guess it just didn't translate very well. Um, I would also say that she is extremely petite compared to her comic iteration. Savant, who was played by Michael Rooker, was a character created by Gail Simone for Birds of Prey, issue number 56 in 2003. Uh, comparing the two characters, Rooker looks way less cool than the comic version. Uh, Blackguard was created by Dan Jurgens in Booster Gold number one, 1986. He's played by Pete Davidson, um, who looks far less ridiculous than the comic Blackguard, and to the point where you wouldn't even be able to recognize him as being this character 
unless you were told, so take that how you will. Javelin was created by Len Wein in 1984's Green Lantern 173. His character is a pretty close physical translation, but they did give him long hair, where the comic version does not have long hair. The detachable, the detachable kid was Nathan Fillion. Uh, I don't have to explain which character that was. I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, he is an actual comic character. I had a little bit of trouble figuring out the order of how all of this played out, but as far as I could tell, he was originally created as a character called... I'm not even fucking kidding me. A character was called Arm Fall Off Boy. Look it up. It's, it's, I swear, it's a real thing. Um, but he apparently has appeared also as the detachable kid since then. As far as I can tell, they are the same character, just under two very different kind of translations. Uh, and finally, we have Weasel, who didn't actually die on the beach, as we find out in the end. Uh, he is played by uh, Sean Gunn, who I had the pleasure of meeting at a con one time when I was dressed as a shitty Wonder Woman. Um, he first appeared in Firestorm and the Nuclear Man number 35 in 1985. Um, and looks far less threatening in the movie than he does in the comics. It's very strange. I guess they went the direction that they did with Weasel's appearance for humor's sake. Um, I would honestly say they probably would have gotten a better reaction if they had gone more with how he looks in the comics, but that's just my opinion. So then we have uh, the rest of the characters in the movie who make it further along than just that very first scene. Uh, Harley Quinn, of course, was the absolute best part of the movie. Her arc, as everybody is talking about online, her arc has been just completely fantastic uh, th from uh, the first Suicide Squad to um, Birds of Prey to this. Um, her look is the perfect next step that I have been predicting since I first saw Birds of Prey. Uh, Harley with the black and red hair was clearly going to be um, the next proper phase for her, and they've finally given it to us, Harley with the black and red hair. I love it. Um, her costume we see here, well, the first costume that she wears, um, is very strongly based off of some of the Arkham game versions of her. Some of them have black and red hair, some of them have the traditional kind of pink and blue hair, uh, but the black and red leather costume, um, kind of more strappy and military-esque, possibly a little bit, uh, is very much taken for inspired by the Arkham game. Um, other than that, I don't think Harley Quinn needs very much introduction. She was created for the animated Batman series by Paul Dini um, and eventually made the transition to canon comics. And as I said, um, she really was the best part of this movie. The second costume she wears is this gorgeous red dress. Um, just overall a phenomenal design for her. All the scenes that she were was in, I feel like, were the best art-designed scenes. Um, and it, it showed her as a uh, self-rescuing damsel, a... Um, honest god badass with a gun and with her physical abilities um stunningly gorgeous and able to kind of play that game um and still have the harley quinn backbone of meaning well but not necessarily having it go well um so i'm very happy with how they did her in the movie i just wish there had been more of her 
Bloodsport was played by Idris Elba. He first appeared in the comics in Superman number four, 1987. The late 80s and the mid to early 60s are where most of these characters come from, just to let you know. Uh, notably about Bloodsport, though, his first appearance is the first issue where Maggie Sawyer appears as the first openly gay female character at DC Comics. Both him and Maggie Sawyer, of course, were created by the writer and artist John Byrne, very classic Superman in the 80s artist and writer. Uh, Maggie Sawyer notably becomes a girlfriend of Kate Kane's Batwoman in the New 52, and Kate's superhero status causes issues in their relationship as Sawyer is a police officer. Bloodsport looks not a whole lot like his comic version, which I would say is probably a good thing, because his comic iteration is more or less just a black guy with bullets strapped across his chest, wearing a wife beater, army print cargo pants, and a red bandana over his eyes. Really not a positive portrayal of a black man. Um, I, there was a second version in 1993 that was introduced by Carl Kessel, um, but he's a white supremacist, so they did a pretty much 180 on that one to get that second version of him in. Ratcatcher 2 is not actually a character from the comics. Um, her father was the original Ratcatcher in the DCEU universe, as they've kind of explained it. He is not really named, as far as I recall, in the movie. However, he's played by Taika Waititi, which is pretty cool. Um, her name, her real name, is Cleo Kazo. Uh, there is no Kazo in the comics, as far as I can tell, of any kind. Uh, the comic version of Ratcatcher goes by Otis Flanagan. Flanagan. Um, but as far as her costume goes, they did get a pretty good, they did a pretty good job getting it on point. Um, her male counterpart first appeared in Detective Comics number 585 in 1988. Uh, there has yet to be a female counterpart in the comics, but after the success of her character in the movie, I have no doubt that she will probably be making that transition at some point soon. Polka Dot Man, played by David Dusmalkian, was a very... Uh, interesting character, if nothing else. He is one of the ones who kind of um, gets made fun of for being different, and while, yes, he does have his moments in this a couple of times, his death was one of the most predictable things I have ever seen in film, in in movies, in cinema, in TV, in anything. It was, it was, yeah, it was pretty predictable in the moment. Um, and it kind of felt like predictability is fine, but it's, it felt like something that was supposed to shock us, and it didn't. Um, but anyway, Protective protect, Man. Detective Comics 300 in 1962 is when Polka Dot Man first appears. He was created by Bill Finger and Sheldon Moldoff. There's not a whole lot of variation to be had in his costume, so they did an alright job. Warden Economos, Economos, Econo, Economos is probably how you say it, was the character played by Steve Agi. Um, they somehow made him look even rougher for wear than he does in the comics, where he is a warden of Bell Rev during the John Ostrander run of Suicide Squad, which was the 1987 run. Peacemaker first appears as a character of Charlton Comics in The Fightin' Five, number 40, in 1966. 
first came to DC Comics with the event Crisis on Infinite Earths in 1985, first appearing in number six with the other Charlton Comics characters. He was reintroduced in 2006 during the modern era in Blue Beetle number three. King Shark was another character that was infantilized a lot. Um, It was fine, I guess. I just... Nah. Superboy number nine was his first appearance in 1994. He has a very different personality in the comics. And if we're going for alternative King Sharks, I have to say the Harley Quinn show version is still far better. Rick Flagg was an original OG back in the day, first team Suicide Squad member, um, which was 1959. He appeared, well, they all appeared first in The Brave and the Bold, number 25, 1959, and they killed him off. Uh, Amanda Waller, she is, I had had issues with this version of her. This is, of course, not Viola Davis' first time playing Waller. However, it is her first time playing Waller as a, um, not strict and stern lady the way she always has been. Her entire character is that she's in charge of the Suicide Squad because she is willing to do, make the hard calls. Um, Just like in the first Suicide Squad, when you have what's his name who goes and immediately runs off trying to escape and she just blows his brain up because that's what she said she was going to do if they tried to escape. She does it without hesitation. Even in the beginning of this movie, she does it without hesitation uh, when it's Savant who tries to escape and she kills him without hesitation. So why is it that at the end of the movie, she hesitates? She hesitates so much that she ends up standing there yelling over the microphone instead of just doing it. Yelling threats. Since when has Amanda Waller been a woman for threats? She is a woman of action. We have had that proved in the comics and in the movies. That just goes for another one of the slightly problematic things of making this angry black woman more acceptable to a wide audience, of making her not as angry. Or as lethal, I guess. Um, but yeah, the Ayer Suicide Squad surprisingly had her character down a lot better. Um, I believe in the Ayer Suicide Squad, she killed a bunch of her team members, didn't she? Her own team members? Like, without hesitation. And and now she's hesitating on killing villains. It just, it's it's a different, a very different portrayal. Um, not at all Viola Davis's fault. I would say that was the writer's fault, and we all know who that is. Uh, her first appearance was Legends number one, and she started leading the Suicide Squad in Legends number three. She was created by Len Wein and John Byrne uh, in 1986. And if you are a fan of her character, most of her first appearances are all fairly inexpensive. So check out some local uh, long boxes at whatever shops that you can find comics at. You might find it there for pretty cheap. Amelia Harcourt, as I mentioned, only has 14 appearances in her comic version. Uh, And she also has short hair. uh, But James Gunn had to have some character to throw his girlfriend at. So that's why she got pulled into this. Uh, The thinker is... um, He's he's had a couple different um, varying in uh, he's had a couple different versions of himself and ve- with with various uh, similar similarities and differences in their appearances. I'm having trouble with words. Um, 
he first appeared in All Flash number 12 in 1943. He is easily the oldest character in the movie. Uh, his original self suffered from a degenerative, a gen degenerative nerve disease. Um, he also appeared on the CW Flash show, looking a lot like Metron, to be honest. And finally, Starro, our, our glorious villain who gets killed off in the end for really... I mean, it could, it could have definitely gone another way, but whatever. Um, he first appears in The Brave and the Bold number 28 in 1960, which is the issue that introduces the Justice League of America for the first time. Fun thing about Starro, um, after the events of Metal, of DC Metal, uh, Scott Snyder was writing the Justice League, um, and in Justice League number 10, uh, we have it revealed that Batman was able to steal some of the genetic material of the previous Starro, who was deceased. Uh, he tried to kind of save the day and it didn't work. He ended up sacrificing himself for the Justice League. And so Batman took some of his genetic material and created Jaro. What is Jaro? Jaro is Starro in a jar. So basically it's one of those little like baby Starros that he shot out of his body to snack on people's faces. It's like that, except it's one and he's in a jar. And he loves Batman and considers him his father. Yes, I am dead serious. He, we, his dream is to be the best Robin there ever was. And yes, I am dead serious. Jaro. Um, that was a big misstep in my mind was that they didn't put Jaro in this. You had all the Jaros, but you didn't Jaro them. <laughs> Maybe it's too modern for them. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's, that's Suicide Squad. That's what I got about Suicide Squad. Um, I'm sorry if I bummed you out about it. Um, but to be honest, these are all things that we should really be aware of uh, as problematic factors in media. Um, and we should all call them out when we see it. Um, just like if I say something problematic and I don't correct myself, let me know and I will fix that behavior. It's not difficult. Um, and it's not difficult to not be problematic in your movies and still have it sell. So, uh, James Gunn, we'll see what happens with Guardians 3 because as of right now, I am not excited for that movie. Uh, I think the best description that I found for James Gunn over the weekend um, hang on, hang on. I swear to God, I have it. Zack Snyder plus Joss Whedon equals James Gunn. Just the holy, un just the unholy trifecta of edgelord directors is kind of what I've come to know him as now. Um, so we'll see how Guardians 3 ends up going. I think the Christmas special comes out before that, so we'll hopefully have that to, like, preview Guardians 3 and see if it's gonna be worth anything. Um, yeah, I, I pro probably a year ago, I would have said that I was super excited for anything James Gunn is doing. And now I'm meh, it's whatever. <laughs> and finally, we're going to finish things off with this episode today with the bad batch. Uh, this was Friday's episode that premiered, uh, episode 15 and there's only going to be 16 episodes. So the finale is this coming Friday. The title of this episode was Return to Camino, so we knew going into it that it was going to be a bit of a big deal. Um, and this is also where we learn the fate of Camino, which we never really saw what happens to anything on Camino to Focus City, anything like that, after we first saw it in the prequel trilogy. 
there has been a lot of high praise for uh, the, the visual justification of this episode, specifically the chaotic water planet that they are on being filled with uh, shining, glimmering, beeping technology. Uh, very nice justification. Uh, in this episode, the Batch is trying to get to Zipoka City, which is the main city on Kamino, uh, this, the main station of the planet. How do they get there? Tunnels. In an honestly fascinating sequence, we learn more about the background of Kamino than we have in any other Star Wars property. Omega shows the Batch how to get into a hidden underwater platform by hovering their ship just above the watery surface, and then tells them about the underwater tunnels that go all over Kamino, which is their way to get from point A to point B, and something that has never really been addressed properly before. Um, it is also notably entertaining to see the tables flipped uh, on the usual for the batch, where it is normally them taking Omega around an unusual planet for the first time. This is now Omega taking them to an unfamiliar planet and showing them things that they never knew existed. Um, when they arrive on the other side of the tubes things, they arrive on a loading dock laboratory kind of place where Omega is greeted by this cute little robot friend of hers, um, who I thought, I, st I still think is highly reminiscent in visual design of the Fantastic Four Herbie robot. Looks exactly like him. Uh, we get an interesting conversation at this point from Omega's side. She explains to the Batch that this is where they were all created and they were made here to have genetic defects that make them so much more unique as clone soldiers. But what I found particularly interesting though was when Omega mentions kind of in passing and nobody really seems to pick up on it that she saw them there being made. On the surface, that really doesn't make sense since she is so much younger than the Batch, but then I remembered uh, the plot of an episode was where, um, an earlier episode, where it was revealed that Omega was a first-generation DNA clone, and that's why they were so desperate to get her back to continue the cloning process with a pure specimen. Is there some way that Omega was really there at the Batch's creation and has either... I don't know, just not aged or was put into stasis of some kind, and that's why she's still young. I don't know. Did anybody else pick up on that, though, where she talks about she was there? I know my husband did when we were watching it together, but I haven't seen many people online discussing this possibility that there's something funky happening with Omega's age, um, and possibly her having been around for decades. Um, but anyway, <laughs> we also get a really amazing reveal from Crosshair, or rather, I guess, sequence of reveals. Hunter had been taken by Crosshair in the end of the last episode, which at the time really had me convinced that he was going to be forced to flip sides, causing Hunter to attack Omega, who would then be saved by Crosshair, completing his full circle of character arc. Um, but this interaction definitely has me uh, thinking differently than that. When Crosshair was ordered to, like, take care of Hunter, he does not. He instead gives him a chance to speak candidly to one another. And we find out that Crosshair took out his inhibitor chip some time ago. This means that he had never, you know, quote-unquote, turned, um, and instead had just willingly started following the nefarious orders of their leaders. Why does he do this without the chip? Because he says it's the job of the clones to follow orders. That's just all they're here for. 
At the same time, another reveal is Crosshair was actually hurt, wounded, as in emotionally, by his brothers of the Batch deciding to leave him there, assuming that he was too far gone. Um, that's a pretty big reveal as well, where he was crushed to find that their loyalty was more to each other than to potentially a infected him, if you want to go that route of saying infected. Um, that's also very interesting. Um, their conversation gets them to be, obviously, a lot more on the same page and closer to their friendship had been in the past. Uh, and when it comes down to it, Hunter ends up stunning Crosshair and taking him out of the building with them. Um, however, while all of this is going on, Topoka City has seen its final day, um, and as multiple Empire ships fire on it, it sends the city into the wild waters below. No doubt the Batch will be able to make it out somehow, but what happens now? They're reunited, um, but not everybody's happy about it, and there's still some, like, mystery about Omega going on, and... Uh, what, what happens now? They're still going to be searched for and having crosshair that may make them even bigger assets. I don't know. I don't know, but I'm excited to find out on Friday how this is all going to end. And we are going to get season two. There were some complaints online that announcing season two was coming before the end of season one means that we're going to, we know how it ends. All you need is one character to continue into season two. All these guys could die except for just one character and we still have season two. Uh, not that I think that's going to happen. I definitely think either Hunter, Crosshair, or Wrecker are going to die. Um, those are my best bets for the finale. I just have one minor thing that I want to mention um, at the end here before we, we wrap this all up for the day. Um... I had had these complaints, right, about the World War She-Hulk event and how you really don't have to torture uh, your characters to get them anywhere. Um, and I had posted that somewhere on social media and some guy replied to me saying, this was the fantastic story. The only way to get this to happen was by torturing her. So of course they should go ahead and torture her. First of all, that's a really sick mindset. Uh, second of all, you're stupid. <laughs> Um, it would have been way more effective if Jen had joined the Red Guard on her own. That way, the Avengers team is the one being betrayed and hurt, not just her personally. And it would make her transformation far more meaningful if she initiated it herself willingly, thereby creating a rift between her and the team like the original World War Hulk this is supposed to be named after. This, what we're getting, is just forcing her to do things that she doesn't want to do. Again, Jason Aaron, get better. And that wraps up uh, today's episode of Sensational She Geek, live from Yancey Street. Thank you, as always, for listening for whatever portion of time you are able to listen for. I always appreciate that. As I said in the beginning, you can find me online. Instagram is Anna with the Comics. Twitter is Savage She Geek. My website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. Uh, you can find me on YouTube by searching Sensational She Geek. Same on Patreon if you would like to support the podcast by donating, which I would really appreciate, but is entirely up to you. Uh, the next podcast episode is going to be on Friday. Oh, 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 guys. Friday the 13th. Whoa. Okay, I, I'm not a subscriber of the belief that 
Friday the 13th is like a bad omen. Um, I get it's like a movie and stuff, but in my, in my mind, a day that comes rarely and is celebrated as being a rare, isn't that lucky thing? Right? Isn't that more of a positive thing? That's just always been my thing. I, I've never believed in bad luck on Friday the 13th. Um, but we will have our next episode on Friday the 13th. It's going to be episode 29B. We're wrapping it up, getting, not wrapping it up, but we're getting close to 60 episodes here. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, we're already past 50. And on that Friday episode, we will be definitely discussing uh, comic book picks, things that turn out to be new and interesting, exciting from this week's comic book poll list, as well as Disney's What If, or rather Marvel What If on Disney+, Plus, which is premiering Wednesday. Do not forget, if you would like to watch that, I will be talking about it on Friday. Titans Season 3, as I said in the beginning, also premieres on Thursday. If I get a chance to watch it Thursday night, I will discuss it on Friday's episode as well. Otherwise, it will be discussed on the Monday episode with the finale of The Bad Batch. Thank you again for listening. Um, I appreciate absolutely any kind of interaction or support I get from the podcast in any way. Uh, please do interact. I do like to uh, get feedback and to hear what people's thoughts are on things that I talk about. I always really love that. So go ahead and annoy me because it will not annoy me. <laughs> um, and that's about it. I hope you guys have a great week. It's getting to be a very hot part of summer where I am, wherever you are and whatever time of weather, type of weather it is. Do stay hydrated. Uh, try not to be judgmental because everybody has a different story. And always stay sweaty about your hobbies. <laughs>